of the way today. And more excited I could not be. Uh, as most of you guys know, I was not here last Sunday. It's good to be back. It's good to be home. My family and I were on vacation. The four of us in my household, along with my mom, so five of us total, went out west. We visited San Francisco. We've never been to San Francisco before, but we have family out there. I have a couple of cousins that I haven't seen in many, many, many years, as in more than a decade, uh, more than two in one case. Um, and so we got to visit with some family, but we also saw the sights in San Francisco. We spent the day on Alcatraz. We went on a whale watching tour. We uh, hiked through the Redwood Forest. We saw the sites down by the wharf and, and, and by the, the seaside there in San Francisco. And we had a great, great time. Last Sunday, as it happened, this was not my plan, but as it happened in schedule, last Sunday was our travel day. And because of the time difference, uh, at about 8.15 in my hotel room before we had gotten on the road yet, I logged on to YouTube and I worshiped with you guys. Um, so that was fun. I did hear Garrett say, I think Dan's traveling and uh, I, I, I had not yet left. So I, I was there. I wasn't at all creepy. I wasn't snooping on you. I just, I love my church. And so it was great to be able to do that um, from a distance. But how many of you know this feeling of having gone on a vacation and been like, man, what a great vacation. And boy, am I exhausted, right? Like you just, you need, I've, I've said it several times, you need a vacation after the vacation, right? I'm gonna have to talk to the board of deacons about that, but uh, right now I'm just gonna complain a little from the pulpit, need a vacation after the vacation. Uh, I was so glad to get away and we did so many great things and so many exciting things. And yet by the time it's over, yeah, you're sad that it's over, but you're also like, it's good to get home. It's good to get home because vacations, I think, are a good thing, but sometimes it seems you can have too much of a good thing. See what I did there? <laughs> See what I did there? Sometimes it is possible, I believe, you can, you can have a little too much of a good thing. And, and that, of course, brings us to the, the discussions we've been having this summer. We're going to try and find the sweet spot. It's good to have good things. But sometimes we're surprised to find out there's such a thing as too much of a good thing. This week I want to talk about that, and I've got ministry on my mind. Ministry. Ministry is one of those great church words, isn't it? We don't use the word ministry outside the church too often. When we say it in church, we talk about ministry. Here's what ministry really is. Ministry refers to the work that we do for God, for his people, and for his kingdom. When I say the word ministry, that's what I'm referring to. The work that we do for God, for his people, and for his kingdom. And sometimes ministry is very, very specific. I think about Jenna Raymond, our, our worship leader. She has responsibilities in ministry. She has a very specific ministry here at HRCC to lead us in worship. It's a, it's a job title and it's very, very well defined in many ways, but oftentimes ministry can be much more vague than that. Each one of us has a responsibility to be involved and engaged in ministry. If you're part of the body of Christ and you have a calling to ministry, and that might not necessarily be formal, like Jenna's ministry is formal. It may not even be a particular role you play on a weekly or monthly basis. It may not necessarily be the case that you're a kid's church teacher, for instance, or you're part of the prayer group midweek. But 
Even if that's not the case, each one of us, I think, must always be aware of the ways in which God is calling us, asking us, and inviting us to serve him, to serve his people, and to serve his kingdom. That's what ministry looks like. And a sure sign of a healthy disciple is that they are growing in their capacity to engage in ministry, which would make you think that you could never have too much ministry, right? You would make you think that you could never have too much ministry. And then we read what the word of God says about the work that we do for him and for his people and for his kingdom. And a handful of scriptures come to mind as I think about this. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 tells us, let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us. Perseverance to me says we don't give up. We never stop. We keep going in the work we do, in the life we live, in the ministries we engage in. We keep on going more, 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 more. That's what perseverance says to me. First Peter chapter 4 in his discussion on the spiritual gifts. In verse 11, Peter writes, If anyone serves, I would say we could easily say if anyone ministers, if anyone serves, they should do so with the strength that God provides. Now, let me ask you a rhetorical question. How much strength does God provide? Does he provide a little bit so we can do a little and then we're kind of done? Or does God provide tremendous, infinite, God-sized strength so we can keep on ministering, so we can keep on going? I kind of like this thing going on today, right? God provides God-sized strength for God-sized ministry. We're building a good case. You can't have too much ministry. And then I think about the work we do. How about the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 9, verse 62? Jesus was calling about, talking about the ministry of following him, the lifestyle of being a part of the kingdom of God. And he says, no one who puts a hand to the plow. And that's kind of his, his word picture for the work we do in ministry, right? In serving God, in serving his people, and in serving his kingdom. No one who puts a hand to the plow, picture this, and then looks back, not paying attention to what they're doing, with their mind on something else. Nobody who puts a hand to the plow and then looks back is fit for service, again, fit for ministry in the kingdom of God. So if you're going to minister, Jesus says, you've got to do it with all your heart. You've got to keep going. You've got to look at it. You've got to, you've got to pay attention to it. You've got to work hard at it. Ministry, 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 ministry. And reading verses like this would make you think, that the goal of every Christian should be to engage in as much ministry as possible. And you know what? We at Hobson Road Community Church are here to help in that endeavor. We can make that happen for you. On Sunday mornings, you could come and you could work in the sound booth with Brian. And you know what? He would love you for it. He's He's lost some, some volunteers in recent months. They've gone and gotten pregnant and all sorts of things, right? Yeah, we need some help in the booth. Mike's waving at me right now. Every Sunday morning, Mike's there behind the camera. Mike would love a partner in the camera ministry, right? You could come on Sunday morning and work on our tech crew. Then you could come back on Monday night and you could be a youth leader. You could join a small group on Tuesday evenings. We've got some exciting announcements coming up in the next couple of weeks about new groups that we're going to launch in the fall. 
several of them on Tuesday evenings. It'll work out perfectly in your schedule. You could come back on Wednesday morning and be a part of the Midweek Sanctuary prayer group. On Thursdays, you could talk to Stacy Raymond about volunteering at Eagles Wing Learning Center, maybe working with some of the homeschool kids there. You could come back on Friday for our featured Friday events, right? And we had an awesome one this last Friday. On Sunday morning, you could meet Dawn Keach and give her a hand with some of the landscaping around the building and maybe some of the decor inside. And then on Sunday morning, you could do it all over again. You want more ministry, we're here to help. A little codependent much, right? We got plenty for you. And from a certain perspective, it might seem like that would be a very, very good, very Christ-like, very godly, very holy thing. But can you have too much of a good thing? Can you have too much of a good thing? I mentioned Jesus' words about putting a hand to a plow. You see them still there on the, on the screen. It's interesting that just a couple paragraphs after that, not in Luke chapter 9, but in Luke chapter 10, just a few paragraphs after that rich hand to the plow metaphor, Jesus tells another story, a very famous story that speaks to the question of too much ministry. The story that I have in mind is the parable of the Good Samaritan. And you can find it in Luke chapter 10. Now, before I read it for you, and I am going to read it for you today, the parable of the Good Samaritan, a story that I, I would imagine many people in the room are very familiar with, have, have read many times. Let me remind you that a parable means this isn't a literal story. This didn't actually happen. Jesus isn't reporting to us on an incident that he observed. Jesus is trying to teach a principle. And he's using a hypothetical story to make his point. That's what a parable is. And so he tells the story of the Good Samaritan. Luke records it for us in Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 30. And it reads as follows. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes. They beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. Let me pause there. I think most of us very readily understand kind of the nature of what a priest would do. The priest's job was to work at the temple, distribute the sacraments, do all the things that priests do. And so Jesus says that a priest came down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Then Jesus says, so to a Levite. Now, a Levite isn't a term that we use today. A Levite wasn't a job description. A Levite was a particular tribe of Israelites. And these tribes, by their heritage, by their birthright, the Levite's job was to take care of the temple. They weren't the priests who administered the sacraments. They were the worker bees who kept the temple and the worship services. They were the staff. They kept those things going. So Jesus says, so too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, likewise, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, and perhaps you've heard this, Samaritan isn't a job description. It's not like a priest or a Levite. Samaritan is an ethnic description. The Samaritans were cousins to the Jews. They were related, but not fully related to the Jews and the Jews and the Samaritans did not get along. So Jesus is tapping into some, some prejudice here. And so he tells the story that a man of a particular ethnicity, a Samaritan walked by and as he traveled, he came to where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. 
He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Now, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? That's the point that Jesus wants to make to his story. The answer, I think, is fairly plain. And the folks listening to Jesus' story go on to answer the question correctly. And I share this story today because I think it's noteworthy that Jesus chooses to cast three characters in the story. The first two, the priest and the Levite, are very busy in ministry, aren't they? It's their jobs. It's their careers, we would say. It's what they do every day. We could speculate, perhaps they were on their way to the temple to get to work. We're told it was the road to and from Jerusalem that they were traveling on. So that would make sense. A priest or a Levite traveling on that road would be headed in to work, headed in to ministry for the day. But neither of them is the hero of the story. The hero of the story is a layperson, a Samaritan, who presumably had no ministry plans at all that day. We don't know why he was on that road. We don't know where he was headed. We don't know what he had to do, but the very fact that he was a Samaritan implies that he certainly wasn't a leader at the youth group and he wasn't a volunteer in the sound booth. He probably didn't have a ministry, at least not in the way we tend to think about ministry. And yet, in this story, he's the one that ends up serving God, serving his people, and serving his kingdom, better than those whose calendars were absolutely filled with ministry appointments. And so I think this becomes a cautionary tale for those of us who would immerse ourselves in ministry, in its roles and responsibilities. And here's the first caution. Never allow the office to eclipse the opportunity. Never allow the office of ministry, the title we hold, the job we have, never allow that to eclipse or overshadow the opportunity to actually do ministry. Now, we don't know exactly why the priest or the Levite passed by. We do know that it's not because they didn't notice the Samaritan. We can't let them off the hook and say they probably just didn't see because the story that Jesus tells very specifically says they saw and they went out of their way to give him a wide berth. They crossed on the other side. They went the other way. They knew he was hurt. They knew he was hurt. Now, we've already suggested that maybe they felt like their ministry responsibilities, their jobs were too important and they couldn't afford to delay. Maybe that was part of the reason that they crossed by on the other side. There's another possible clue here. It says that the robbers that beat the man left him half dead. And this reminds me of Billy Crystal and the Princess Bride. Because mostly dead is still a little alive. Where's Gen X today? Come on. Thank you. All right, so he's half dead, which means it might have been tough to tell. Is he really half dead or is he completely dead? And certainly for a priest and most likely for a Levite, there were very strict rules about coming into contact with dead bodies. And if you did it, you were disqualified from 
your ministry for a while. You were ceremonially unclean. And so coming by and seeing a body by the side of the road and not knowing for sure, is it alive or dead? The safe role for somebody in ministry would be to give it a wide berth. I can't afford to risk the possibility of not being able to do my ministry. And so they crossed over to the other side and they kept on moving. Whatever the specific reasons, it seems that Jesus is implying that the priest was just too concerned with being a priest. And the Levite was just too concerned with being a Levite. Both were more focused on their office than on the opportunity to actually minister to a hurting man. Among the many images, the poignant images that have become part of our collective consciousness after the attacks of 9-11, I still remember coming up on the 20th anniversary of that event, right? And I remember that we had cameras rolling outside the Pentagon just moments after the plane hit the Pentagon. You can go online and search this if you're not familiar with the image that I'm gonna reference here. But there were cameras rolling, showing people in the chaos with the building burning behind them and people out on the lawn as first responders were just beginning to arrive. And in one of those shots, you can see a group of people huddled around a stretcher as a wounded individual is placed on that stretcher. And then this group, as, as a group collectively picks up this stretcher or gurney or whatever it might have been and begin to carry it presumably towards an ambulance with an IV pole and everything else so that this wounded individual can get proper treatment. And if you look amongst that group, that rather crowded, hectic group of people carrying this stretcher, Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld. The Secretary of Defense, the Pentagon is his building. He's 69 years old, it's been attacked moments before and is he in a bunker with with Secret Service? Is he on a secure call with the president? Is he being hurried away to some other place? Is he doing something befitting his office? No, he's helping a hurt man and he's carrying a stretcher. Now, put aside whatever your preconceptions might be about the politics of the, the people that were in charge of our nation at that moment in history. I'll tell you what, that's a picture of ministry. That's a picture of ministry. You see, he didn't let the office eclipse the opportunity to help. The Apostle Paul put it this way in his letter to the Philippians, chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. He says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Be like Jesus. What was Jesus like? Paul says, being in very nature God, Jesus didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant. I would suggest to you that that last word, that word servant, is better translated slave. The word in Greek there is doulos. And I can tell you this, doulos isn't somebody that you hired once a week to come over and help you clean up the place. A doulos isn't somebody that you hired to come answer your door and park your car for you and take you out to the Piggly Wiggly Miss Daisy when you needed some shopping to be done, right? A doulos was somebody who lived in your household, had no rights, had no economy, and they did whatever you said they had to do because you owned them. Jesus took on the very nature of a doulos. He took on the very nature of a slave. The idea that to do ministry like Jesus did ministry means that we can't cling to the privileges that come with our office. 
Rather, we have to look for opportunities to act like a slave. I can tell you as a pastor, there's a a long list of pastors that I have learned from through my life. Pastors who have taught me about how to do hospital visitations. Pastors who have taught me about how to prepare sermons. Pastors who have taught me about how to preach and how to study and how to do all sorts of things. And I'm thankful for, for all of them. If you've been a part of this congregation longer than the nine years that I've been your pastor, then you'll remember Pastor West. Pastor Joe West, who was your pastor before I came here. I learned a lot from Pastor West. And in addition to all the things that I just told you that I learned from other pastors, Pastor West was the only pastor in my history that taught me how to scrub toilets. (laughs) Pastor West taught me how to scrub toilets in the church building. Pastor West taught me how to mow the lawn on a rusty old ride-on lawnmower on Saturday afternoons, even though you still had work to do on your sermon for the next morning. Pastor West taught me how to shovel driveways when a heavy snowfall came. In 1999, I worked in this congregation as the worship leader. I worked for Pastor West. How many of you remember in January of 1999, the blizzard? January 2nd, we got 21 inches of snow that day. I was working for Pastor West at the time, living in the church parsonage right out front. Pastor called me on my home phone. Yes, because we didn't have cell phones. At least I didn't in 1999 and said, grab the shovel, I'll be by in a few minutes. And we loaded up his van with as many snow shovels as we could find. He drove around to the homes of the the teenage boys in our youth group, and we spent the next two days going from home to home of the senior citizens in this congregation, shoveling out their driveways. That's just what we did in ministry that week. And can I tell you, my arms have never hurt as bad as they hurt that week. I'm nothing if not soft and weak. But pastor taught me how to serve. Pastor taught me how to serve. You see, for Joe, excuse me, for Pastor West, Joe was never too important to serve, was he? He was never too busy to help. He never let his office get in the way of an opportunity. And there's another important caution for those who would go beyond the sweet spot in ministry. And it's this, never allow what's next to eclipse what's now. Never allow what's next, what's coming, what's, what's the next item on your agenda. Never let that be more important than what's happening right now. The priest and the Levite were headed somewhere. Where? We don't know. We can speculate, but we really don't know. It's not important, or Jesus would have told us. But wherever it was, and whatever they were going to do, Both of them decided in their minds that it was, in fact, important. It was more important, in fact, than what was immediately in front of them. Busy people have a tendency to be thinking more about what's next than what they're doing right now. Can my busy folks in the congregation say amen? Right? We have a tendency to be more worried about what's next on the agenda than what's actually happening right in front of us. And I think when we're like that, we struggle to be fully present and aware of the importance of what's happening right in front of us. I remember when I was serving as the music pastor at another congregation, um, when service was over, I typically would would help the sound men. As there was a lot of sound gear that had to be taken down and put away and, and cared for. And, 
And so when I finished the service, I very often was on stage at the, at the piano. And uh, first thing I would do is take my microphone apart. The microphone I used had a nine volt battery that we put in it every week. And I would take that nine volt battery out and, <coughs> excuse me, put it in the recycle bin or throw it away, do whatever needed to be done with it and get some of the other microphones together as the sound men were kind of tearing down. One particular Sunday morning, I had just done that. I had taken the, the battery out of the microphone and a woman from the congregation came up to me and she said, excuse me, Pastor Dan, could we talk? And I turned around and I said, yeah, we could talk. And I could see already that she had tears in her eyes. And, and you just kind of know right away, oh, this isn't going to be a, a quick conversation. This isn't going to be a, hey, how are you? Nice to see you kind of moment. So I took the battery that was in my hand and not wanting to be distracted by it, I just slipped it in my pocket. She began to tell me some things that she had been going through that week. She'd had a very, very difficult week. There were things going on at home that were incredibly uh, challenging to her. And as she told me, she just began to weep and weep and weep. And I was doing my best to, to stand and listen to her. And I, I wanted to, to minister to her, right? And somewhere in the midst of that conversation, I realized that the battery that I had dropped in my pocket had landed on my keys. You know how those 9-volt batteries are? The two uh, terminals on them were touching one of my keys, and things were getting really hot on the low. <laughs> and so trying to be subtle, as I was listening to her, I just kind of reached my hand into my pocket to grab that battery again and free it from my pain, and I couldn't. There was a thread in my pocket that had the keys kind of stuck, and so I kind of listened for a few moments doing one of these numbers. <laughs> And my hands kind of stuck in it, and I could not get that battery free from those keys. And meanwhile, I'm getting my very first thigh tattoo, right? As this thing heats up more and more and more. And she just keeps talking and talking and crying. And from the neck up, I'm going, oh, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yes, yes. And I can't get that stupid battery out of my pocket, and it really hurt. And I can tell you, as a, as a, confession to my church family today there came a point in that conversation where I have no idea what she was saying because all I could think about in my mind is when is this going to be over so that I can get this stupid battery out of my pants because it's killing me now perhaps a wiser man would have said Excuse me, can I ask you to just stop for just a moment while I remove this flaming piece of metal from my thigh and then we can continue our conversation? But I wasn't a wise man, I was a young man. And so I stood there and I pretended. I pretended. I forget why I was telling you that. Oh yeah, here it is. For many of us, our plans and our schedules can be like that burning battery in the pocket where what's happening right in front of us no longer matters. We aren't seeing, we aren't listening, we aren't paying attention anymore because all we can think about is that other thing that seems to be burning with importance. But look at what the Word of God says about that. In Proverbs chapter 4, verse 25, the author says, Let your eyes be straight ahead and fix your gaze directly before you. In other words, wisdom, that's what Proverbs is about, right? Wisdom in ministry comes from understanding what's happening right here, what's happening right now. Now, admittedly, 
This is a tricky one. Because we talk all the time in church about how we're supposed to be focused on heaven, not focused on earth. We talk all the time about how we need to live with the knowledge and in the reality that we aren't really citizens of this kingdom in the here and now. We are citizens of a kingdom that we are all headed toward. And so how do we do that? How do we maintain that perspective on that kingdom And now, pastor, you're telling me that wisdom in ministry means I need to be very aware of what's happening in the here and now. Well, there's a word. I'm going to give you a word today. It's a $2 word. It's a great Scrabble word. It's a word that that describes that focus on the heavenly kingdom. The word is eschatological. No, I'm not going to spell it, mostly because I had to run it through my own spell checker several times. But eschatological, to have an eschatological mindset means to have a mindset that's based and and thinking and focused about the heavenly kingdom. But here's the thing. Having an eschatological mindset doesn't mean dreaming about the future and ignoring the present. On the contrary, I believe having an eschatological mindset, in other words, can we just say it the easy way? I believe that thinking about life the way God has asked us to think about life doesn't involve ignoring the present in favor of the future. Instead, it means bringing the future into the present. That's what Jesus did. We describe the ministry of Jesus in the time he was on earth as a a ministry where he inaugurated the kingdom. Essentially, he said to his followers, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is here now. We don't have to wait for it anymore. It's time to start living in that reality now. It's time to stand with feet firmly planted in the present, reach into the future and grab it and bring it here. That's having an eschatological mindset. It means, yes, I'm here but I'm living like I'm in heaven. Our role, our responsibility, our mission, church, is to bring heaven to earth. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is what we do. I told you I logged on and worshiped with you remotely last Sunday morning. My favorite preacher was giving the message, the sermon, Pastor Garrett. I love to listen to Pastor Garrett. Every time he preaches, I come away with at least one line that I go, I'm going to chew on that for a while. And here's the line Garrett gave us last week when he was talking about, is it possible to have too much faith? You notice that was like the trickiest of these messages, and I gave it to him because of my confidence in my associate pastor. Is it possible to have too much faith? And Garrett made this point in the middle of his sermon. Maybe you remember it. If you didn't hear it, go back and listen to it on our YouTube. Garrett said, faith goes too far when it denies what is seen. Faith goes too far when it denies what is seen. Don't tell me you have a lot of faith if you aren't dealing with the facts. Faith goes too far when it denies what is seen. I told Garrett this week, I said, I I want to see your notes because I want to make sure I get that line exactly right because I am stealing it. And I'm stealing it here today, folks. And I'm going to apply it to ministry because I think the same principle is true of ministry. Ministry goes too far 
when it denies what is seen. Ministry begins with what is happening now. We can't be the priest and the Levite who say, I'm not going to pay attention to the hurting man because I've got to do ministry. No, ministry like that has gone too far because it denies what's seen, what's right in front of it. Thanks for that, Garrett. I'll pay you later. <laughs> Let me give you an example. I think a very timely example, a very important example here at HRCC. I've spent a lot of time this last year as everything with, with COVID has caused us to, to shut some ministries and programs and, and different things down. And we've had to kind of just exist in this new world for the last year plus, looking forward to the time when things would get back to normal, like that's ever gonna happen. But the deacons and I and the staff and I have, have been praying and we've been talking and discussing and dreaming a lot about, well, as we, we reemerge, as we relaunch some, some ministry, as, as we do things in the future at HRCC, how are we going to do them? What are we going to do? What are we going to go back to? What are we not going to go back to? What are we going to change? What is going to be the essence or the most important things in ministry at HRCC in the coming years. I've spent a lot of time this year having conversations with my colleagues and with God about those things. And we've come up with some really, really good ideas. We've come up with what I believe are God-driven ideas for what ministry in this church needs to look like going forward. But you know one thing that we never talked about? Something that I never thought of, something that I never accommodated or, or, or planned on, it was how so many of you would be spending your time in quarantine. And now we got all these pregnant women. <laughs> We've already had two new babies this year. We've announced several other pregnant women in the congregation. I found out about another one this week. Yeah, spoiler alert, right? Y'all are just having babies. And that was never part of these conversations. But that is part of the reality of what's happening here and now. And so in our moderately sized little congregation, within the next year, I think this is gonna be the cry room and the rest of us are gonna have to go into the cafe to have church. Here's what that really means for ministry. We gotta get our nursery staff ready to go. We haven't had to run a nursery staff since the pandemic began. We gotta get our nursery staff ready to go. You're ready to volunteer in nursery, Miss Katz got a place for you. Here's what else it means. One of the most important things, and I'm talking to everybody my age and older, one of the most important things we can be doing now is coming alongside young parents. Coming alongside young parents. Many of the babies being born in this congregation are being born to first-time parents. And they're going to need some mentor moms. And they're going to need some mentor dads. And they're going to need a church family who's going to say, man, we love you. We love you. Look, my kids are, are into their teen years now. And I can tell you, as every parent in the room could tell you, parenting is such a bigger deal than you ever imagined it's going to be. Now, every one of us in my shoes... Think about the halls. Think about the Grigsby's who announced last night they're expecting a baby boy. Think about all of these first-time parents 
And think about raising that newborn baby in a COVID world. How are you going to do that? Man, they're going to need our support. They're going to need our love. They're going to need our care. They're going to need our ministry. And if the plans we have for what small groups we're going to launch this year or what, what ministry things we're going to do, if blah, 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 blah. If all of those plans fail to address just the reality of what life at HRCC is like right now, then folks, we have missed the boat. We can't allow what's next to eclipse what's actually going on right now. That's what ministry looks like. One last caution from the story of the Good Samaritan, and it's this. Never allow what's required to eclipse what's right. This might be the most important lesson. Never allow what's required to eclipse what's right. The priest and the Levite had jobs to do. There were things that were required of them by virtue of their ministry responsibilities. Let's think about it. The temple can't open its doors. It can't welcome people. It can't function unless the Levite is there to do his job. And the sacraments can't be distributed. The sacrifices in their context can't take place unless the priest is there to do what is required of him by his job. The ministry required things of those men. And yet in this story, those requirements caused both of those guys to avoid doing simply what was right. Most cases, doing what is, what is right, can we say, we've already used this word today, doing what is good, doing what is good and what is right shouldn't be so difficult for us to figure out. Prophet Micah wrote this, chapter 6, verse 8. He says, he has shown you, O mortal, you don't have to struggle to figure this out. He has shown you what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So what's good? This is a big part of that is acting justly. In other words, just doing the right thing. What's good? Doing the right thing is good. If you take nothing else away today, could we agree on that principle? It's good to do the right thing. And in this story, that didn't happen. Words like good and right, I think in our culture, are so very superficial. But in Scripture, they're really, really important. And they have deep, deep, rich meanings. They are thick and pregnant and dripping with this idea that God is infinitely good and God is infinitely right. And ministry in his name can never lose sight of his goodness or his righteousness. And unfortunately, church, we are living in an era when in far too many cases, the modern church has lost sight of that principle. We have made it more important to be big than to be good. Ministries in the last generation have grown bigger and bigger. They've grown busier and busier. They've grown more and more influential. And in the eyes of those who lead them, in far too many cases, they have become too big to fail. And running ministries like this doesn't require a shepherd like Jesus. It requires a businessman or a businesswoman who is savvy in the marketplace. Somebody who knows how to be cutthroat and knows how to avoid, or better yet, win the lawsuits and the grievances. 
And we have done what was required in order to sustain ministries like that without giving proper heed to what's right. And so in too many cases, Christian individuals and Christian corporations have harmed people and we've looked the other way because it seemed like that's what was required to sustain the ministry. And we're reminded today by the words of Jesus himself that that's what the priest did. And that's what the Levite did. Ministry became so important that they forgot to do ministry. Can I say that again? Listen. Ministry became so important that they forgot to do ministry. And we can't let that happen. They missed the sweet spot. In HRCC, we won't. Amen? Amen. We won't. We would do well to learn from their mistakes. We would do well to remember that ministry isn't about the title that we have. It's not about the meetings on our calendar. It's not about the role that we play at our church. Ministry is about serving God. It's about serving his people. And it's about serving his kingdom. And follower of Jesus, that is the life to which you have been called. That is the plow that you must keep your hand to without ever turning back. And when the world says, well, what about your office? Keep your hand to that plow. When the world says, well, what about what's next? No, no, no. Keep your hand to that plow. When the world says, what about what's required of you? Uh-uh, 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 uh-uh. Keep your hand to that plow. That's what ministry looks like. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you, Lord, for the ministry that you have called us to. We thank you today and we recognize that by your spirit, you are filling, anointing, baptizing, and equipping your people to do ministry. God, we have been called to serve you, to serve your people and to serve your kingdom. And God, this is what's good. And so Lord, we repent of those moments and the many ways in which we as individuals, in which HRCC is a church, and in which the church with a capital C and all three levels, the many ways and the instances in which we have let the office overshadow the opportunity. We've let what's next become more important than what's right now and we focus too much on what's required and not enough on what's right. We repent of that. And we ask, Spirit, that you would fill us and equip us, that our hands would be affixed to the plows that you have asked us to use in ministry. Lord, that we would be that eschatological people that though firmly grounded in the here and now, reach into the future, reach into that kingdom which has been opened to us by our Savior and say, it is now. It is now. Lord, I pray that this congregation specifically, our church home, our church family, my brothers and my sisters, I pray that we would be known in your kingdom and in this community as a place, as a, as a community, as a fellowship, Lord, that just does what is good. What is good? That whatever title we hold, whatever responsibilities we have, we would be eager to serve. 
that we would see what you have for us. God, anoint us with this, that we would serve you well, that we would be faithful to the calling that you have given us. We submit ourselves as living sacrifices before you for these purposes, your purposes. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.